What I'm going to talk today uh, about is my current um, uh, is about my current um, uh, research. In fact, um, it's a sort of a what could be the last chapter in my short or long history of the uh, of physiognomy in the Middle Ages, ages, a history which starts in circa 1200 and which I end uh, circa 1500. So just that you will know, this is the end of my story, uh, what could be the end of my, my story. Um, physiognomy belongs to a group of practices, including medicine, that revolve around the semiotics of the body. The physiognomer has always used the same analytical categories, color, movement, shape, texture, temperature, that help the physician determine a diagnosis. Now, what really lies behind this symptomatic model shared in this case by medicine and physiognomy? Intuition, access to occult or even divine knowledge, or a solid theoretical framework which can crown these practices with a desired diadem of a science, scientia. If this question was asked before the year 1200 in the Latin West, the answer would probably have been that with this kind of knowledge, factors are at play which cannot be measured, a whiff, a glance, an intuition. But parallel to what is now a well-documented process that led to the recognition of medicine as a, as a medieval science, a similar, though slightly slower, process can be detected in physiognomy. The great contribution of the Middle Ages to physiognomy would be to free it from this intuitive, conjectural stage by supplying it with a firm theoretical foundation. But this happened gradually and not without some serious opposition. The long lists of signs and significances, very often badly ordered and unsystematic, and always lacking any attempt to provide some sort of causal explanation, could not be received to the pantheon of the sciences just like that. The approach of combination of evidence, whereby several pieces of evidence support a specific conclusion, even if the individual pieces are weak, adopted by the ancient physiognomers to stabilize the uncertainty characterizing the subject, did not remove the doubts engulfing physiognomy. Something else was needed. From the late 12th century, two important classical authorities, which became available to all, provided significant arguments in support of those critical of physiognomy's uncertainty and lack of explanatory value. First, there was Galen, who in the Complexionibus subtly inserted a severe critique of physiognomers when comparing them to physicians. Galen tied together the threads in Aristotle and in in the Hippocratic corpus to provide a humoral framework for physiognomy, and he appears to have endorsed its basic principles, but he criticized the physiognomists for failing to address the issue of causation. That is, what, uh, what is the reason for a behavioral pattern which follows a certain bodily sign? Then there was Pliny the Elder, who throughout the 13th and 14th century was by far less trendy than in the 15th and 16th centuries, but whose critique of Aristotle's interest in physiognomy was generally available through its incorporation into Vincent of Beauvais' encyclopedic Speculum Naturale. In book 11 of his Natural History, Pliny considered the conclusions of physiognomy frivolous um, and expressed his surprise that the great Aristotle considered them worthy of his teaching. Under attack were physiognomy's prognostic pretenses, as well as uh, its role as a decoder of human character. Um, a while ago, I have studied, uh, I, I studied the, the scholastic discourse among philosophers and physicians who were fervently discussing the status of physiognomy uh, as a valid science in the 13th, 14th, and 15th centuries. It seems that learned 13th and 14th century physiognomers, mainly philosophers to judge by the authors of the treatises on physiognomy, did not feel threatened by this Plinian or Galenic critique. 
for there is no reference to such a critique in, 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 the, in their writing. And this is perhaps not surprising. Furnished but what they believed was a body of uh, knowledge um, uh, fully endorsed and partly invented by Aristotle. And we know today that the uh, uh, physiognomy uh, attributed to Aristotle is only attributed to him, to pseudo-Aristotelian text. Uh, our authority was on their side. Despite constant doubts, physiognomy was recognized by them as a body of knowledge deeply rooted in a sound theoretical basis and characterized by stability and certainty. As a demonstrative science, it was expected to provide rational explanation for every bodily sign and not only a description of its meaning. By 1300, two theoretical frameworks, the medical complexional and the astronomical, were available for those who wished to anchor physiognomic signs to the conventional scientific context. Physiognomy's portrayal as part of, uh, of secret literature, literature and, and, the real, and, and the realm of, of the occult was essentially relegated to the margins of physiognomic discourse. Let me exemplify my approach to late medieval physiognomy by looking at the issue of scientific observation, and this is the core of, of, of this talk. Um, medieval and early Renaissance learned physiognomy until at least the end of the 15th century was not an observational science. Its theoreticians were not empirically testing and exploiting or in, in exploring bodily signs, inferring from them general rules which could be applied universally. Their insights were not the results of cumulative experience actively sought in nature and carefully tested. The physiognomic signs they were discussing were not the distillation of previous observations, similar but not identical. They were commenting the ancient authoritative texts, trying to harmonize them and to remove apparent contradictions between these texts and the natural reality familiar to them. But they were not interested to put the authoritative signs to test or to collect new data. True. Some innovative and daring thinkers, such as Pietro d'Abano, added several new bodily organs from which one could draw new and significant physiognomic insights. A new, the, the addition, uh, this is in addition to the, to, the, uh, to, the, to the classical core of science, uh, uh, which was reprocessed over and over again. Um, but it is impossible to say with any degree of certainty that this was the product of an act of active scientific observation. When Rolandus Scriptoris, I will get back to him soon, the former dean of the Faculty of Medicine in Paris in the 1420s, used around 1430 the verb observare in his Reductorium Physiognomiae, to describe his activity, he was observing ancient texts written by various authorities to extract physiognomic insights or to receive guidance how to advance his investigations. He was not collecting data in the natural world around him. To this non-observational mood, one can link another characteristic separating pre-15th century physiognomy from its modern successors, uh, the absence of measurements the pre-modern physiognomy, or I, I should say perhaps pre-1500, okay? For, for me, uh, because pre-modern can be later. Um, um, the the pre-modern physiognomer was expected to examine human bodies using vague and inaccurate categories of size and weight. I found no attempt before the late 15th century to provide the physiognomer with metric tools which could enhance the precision and hence the validity of the physiognomic judgment. The earliest uh, indication for that can be found, at least the earliest I could find, I, I, I could find are in Michele Savonarola's uh, physiognomy from the 1460s, perhaps. There is in physiognomy, and, the, and, and there, even there it's very rudimentary, it's nothing, nothing like what you would know from the 19th, famous 19th century physiognomers and 20th century. Um, the pre-modern uh, physiognomy was expected to examine human bodies using vague and inaccurate categories of size and weight. I have found no attempt to provide uh, uh, the physiognomer with metric tools. 
uh, which could enhance the precision and hence the validity of the physiognomic judgments. There is in physiognomy no echo to the emergence of quantitative medical theory in the early 14th century in intensive scholastic debates surrounding the science of, uh, 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 physio of physiognomy uh, from around 1300 after, uh, onwards. At the same time, there is no trace of dissatisfaction in these scholastic debates regarding the absence of an observational foundation in, physiognomical, uh, in physiognomic arguments. Medieval and early Renaissance physiognomy was non-iconic and was not accompanied by any literary or visual portraits which could translate the physiognomic signs to visual forms, thus providing perhaps clearer representations of its rules. This may come as a surprise to those familiar with the portraits accompanying vernacular physiognomic texts from the 1520s onwards. And, and what I have here is just an illustration. I'm sure you know it. But uh, the first one is, is um, a 14th century um, illumination of a French encyclopedia which uh, depicts some sort of a, a, a physiognomic checkup, if you wish. There is the uh, physiognomer on the left, and the, the client is coming with a bust of who is the, the object of the person to be, um, to be examined. Uh, however, this is certainly not a depiction, uh, sorry, it's a 14th century yeah, depiction of that, uh, but it's not, it, it, it doesn't depict a reality because it, 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 it is attached to the famous anecdote, uh, classical anecdote, uh, uh, which has some, uh, which has various versions, in which uh, uh, Polemon, uh, um, uh, the students of uh, Hippocrates or Socrates, there are, these are the two options, come to the uh, famous um, 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 physiognomer, uh, who is in one version Polemon, in the, in, in the other version Zophios, and uh, with a bust of their teacher and asking them, uh, their famous uh, physiognomer, to give a, a, a physiognomic uh, judgment uh, about their admired teacher. And the physiognomer says that the, this person is uh, everything, uh, what you could imagine, or the opposite of what they thought, including is uh, addicted to sex and amans coitum, and so in the, in the Latin version and everything. And they are shocked and they want to and, and, and become aggressive towards the, the, the physiognomer. And uh, when they, they come to the teacher and, and complain about this, uh, this fool, the teacher says he was right. Uh, this is who I am, but I can control these uh, uh, inclinations through uh, reason and or philosophy or something like that. So it's an ancient anecdote that which is then uh, is reintroduced into the Latin text, which uh, enables these non-Christian texts to be. Uh, Accepted in a Christian environment, of course, uh, uh, and so this is some sort of a, so it's not a, the, this doesn't accompany uh, a physiognomic text. The physiognomic texts are void; uh, there are no illustrations whatsoever. And when I said the first in the 1520s, is this is the first uh, um, uh, book uh, in which you have these uh, the, the physiognomic texts and the, the, the depiction of the of the of the, an attempt of an artist to understand what what what, the, what these words mean in reality uh, um, this is the uh, vernacular uh, one of the earliest vernacular physiognomies uh, uh, by Johannes de Indagine, uh, German in German, and 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 the, and the, and the illustrator I and mean, the artist is uh, among others uh, Hans Baldung Krim and there's an Wächtling. There, there are two artists, so it's very famous. And then comes uh, De La Porta and, and other, and you know them from the 16th century. But this is not the layout of a physiognomic text uh, before 1520. Before 1520, all the texts are, only, are just textual. There are no... Uh, no okay. Um, the only exceptions uh, in terms of uh, illustrations were rudimentary maps illustrating the lines of the hand in the chiromantic part of these texts. This exemplifies well my understanding of learned physiognomy until 1500. It was highly individualistic art whose complicated diagnostic process had to cope with an infinite number of complexional types which could not be reduced to one drawing. In the long history of uh, physiognomy, there are only few traces of direct observation of at real people. Until, you will see, 1504. Thus, Polemon of Laodicea, 2nd uh, century, um, 
um, uh, physiognomy, contains uh, some detailed uh, um, observations of his contemporaries, including Emperor Hadrian and his courtiers. Medieval and early Renaissance physiognomic texts owe to Polemon their vignettes concerning the eyes of Alexander the Great, of Hadrian, or of Socrates. Alexander's body was exemplary also when uh, the overall proportion of the body was discussed in texts of medieval learned physiognomy. But medieval learned physiognomy shunned even, in, even, even passing references to contemporary celebrities who could serve as visual examples for specific signs or, or, or character traits uh, or whole personality types. The only specific example I have come across before 1500 is in Pietro d'Abano's Liber Compilationis Physiognomiae, Paris, circa 1295, where the author devoted a long chapter um, um, to the various signs of the eyes and included a specific reference to one of Frederick II's most loyal yet controversial Italian allies, Ezzelino da Romano, thus immortalizing in later physiognomic writings Ezzelino's dreadful eyes as representing the apex of cruelty and aggression. This short survey of, non of the non, uh, concerning the non-observational uh, characteristic of late medieval and early Renaissance physiognomy ties well with the recently produced grand narrative of the history of scientific uh, observation, um, and here I refer to uh, this, um, this collection of articles, Histories of Scientific Observation, which appeared in less than two years ago in Chicago, um, edited by Lauren Dustin and, and someone else, uh, of course, the other editor. And in particular, to two, introduc the, to two introductory essays there, uh, uh, the earlier concerning the Middle Ages, written by Catherine Park, and the other and the later one by Gianna Pomata, uh, concerning the 16th century. This narrative has drawn our attention to the fact that the noun observatio, or the verb observare, rarely appear in medieval Latin scientific texts. When a medieval scientist describes the fact that he has acquired per experientiam, per inventionem, per experimentum, uh, when he uses the verb ut vidi, as I saw, ut notavi, ut consideravi, as I con does he tell us that the fact was a, a result of an act of scientific observation as we would understand it today? Scholars of the history of scientific observation normally respond with a clear no. For example, in an attempt to answer the question, what role did observation play in medieval natural philosophy, Edward Grant examined several 14th century examples. He studied the scholastic questions by John of Jandin, by Jean Buridan, by Nicole Orem, by uh, uh, Albert of Saxony, and by uh, Marsilius of Padua. Uh, all um, producing questions uh, uh, um, uh, dedicated to, 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 to the theme of, of motion and vacuum. Um, his conclusions were decisive. We see very little direct observations in the questions uh, uh, literature on Aristotle's natural books. Only few questions were decided by appeal to observation, normally identified in medieval natural philosophy by some form of the term experientia, rather than by any form of the term observatio, observation. This was the case despite the fact that Aristotelianism was empirical and rooted in sense perception. It is thus no exaggeration, Grant concluded, uh, to characterize medieval Aristotelianism as empiricism without observation. This is his uh, um, coin, uh, his, his, his words. Most of the empirical elements in the questions were not di directly uh, observed by the authors who perceived them secundum imaginationem, imagined them, uh, in thought experiments. One can find powerful statements by Albertus Magnus, Roger Bacon, and Jean Buridan in favor of experience and observation, uh, or the use of sense perception rather than of reason, but this did not even approach the concept of experiment uh, in the 17th century that involved the deliberate subjection of nature to searching, questioning, and active interrogation. 
Medieval scientists and natural philosophers thus did what Grant says uh, calls natural philosophy without nature through employing empiricism without observation. They did this by the assumption of counterfactual conditions and thought experiments. Now, this is not so simple because uh, traces of acts of observation when a specific word denoting it, i.e. observatio and its derivatives, is actually missing, and instead employing ambiguous terms such as uh, experimentum or experientia and verbs such as videre, intueri, considerare, sporadically but not systematically appeared in other late medieval scientific fields other than natural philosophy, uh, uh, fields such as astronomy, optics, and discussions of occult physical uh, phenomena like magnetism, for example. Observatio, in a cognitive sense, was used with a narrow focus, the observation of the, heavenly, uh, of the heavens only, i.e. in astrology. Only in the 16th century tells us the grand narrative of the history of scientific observation gradually emerged a new observing mentality among Western scientists at large. When it comes to the human body, traces of scientific observation can be found in individual cases of late medieval dissections of corpses performed for a variety of purposes. Again, without using the Latin verb observo or observare, observare, various people lay and professionals alike opened human bodies in order to draw vital information concerning the innermost self and reveal the body's truths and hidden physicality uh, of the processes of uh, generation to detect signs of hereditary diseases or to find signs of sanctity or to, uh, for forensic purposes. This they did by closely inspecting various internal parts of these bodies. In the beginning of the 16th century, or more precisely in the 1520s, uh, they were describing what they were doing to the bodies as experiments, experientiae, to suggest a greater importance attributed to medical and natural philosophical expertise. Catherine Park links this, evaluation, uh, this evolution, among other things, to, a new work, uh, on, uh, uh, to new work on Galenic sources by learned physicians and other scholars, and in particular to the growing circulation of manuscripts of Galen's on the use uh, of parts, the usu partium, in Latin, which was finally printed in 1528, uh, more than 200 years after there was already uh, a, a, Latin, uh, a working Latin translation available. The medical tradition which emerged inherited from Galen and disseminated and uh, a renewed emphasis on the importance of direct experience and of learning from the body itself. This transformed the nature of anatomical dissection because it allowed the medical men to identify errors made by previous anatomists, including Galen himself, and to create new anatomical knowledge of their own. Prior to this stage, one detects a medieval continuity in the medical use of the term experimentum, which bore little relation to the controlled tests of theoretical propositions fundamental to modern scientific practice. Exper experimenta in medieval and early Renaissance medical discourse were rather singular discoveries, born solely of, ex of, of, of experience, i.e., they were, for example, recipes, uh, uh, remedies, and procedures uh, found often by trial and error to accomplish a particular result. Now, if such a development transformed the practice of looking at cadavers for medical and scientific purposes. In the early 16th century, as, uh, uh, is it possible to detect a similar and concomitant change among those trained to look at the surface, at the surface of living bodies, the physiognomers? And now I return to the physiognomy, um, physiognomy perspective. And... Bartolomeus, uh, uh, who is the object, uh, who, is, who, is, who is my case study, if you wish. The case of Bartolomeo de la Roca Cocles, uh, who was born in 1467, a graduate in medicine from Bologna, um, 1489, and a member of the close circle of the Aristotelian philosopher Alexand Alessandro Achillini, uh, and the author of a six-book physiognomic uh, uh, compendium, 
entitled Chiromantia. So it's a, it's, it's a combination of chiromancy, which is basically reading the, the hands, uh, and physiognomy. So in Latin, it sounds it's like this. It's Chiromantia ac physiognomie anastasis, Renaissance, uh, cum approbazione magistri Alexandri de Achillinis, uh, which was published in Bologna in 1504. So the case of this book and this person hints, perhaps, at an affirmative reply to this question. This book is interlaced with dozens of textual portraits of people examined by him and used um, as paradigmatic examples for the trait or character in question. Such a presentation of physiognomic knowledge is, to my knowledge, without precedent. So uh, he is the, he's in the, in the long, in the um, sources I study, he is the last, uh, I call him, well, you would say he's already an early modernist, but I would call this, he's the last medievalist, if you wish. Uh, it's the, the book is textual only, no pictures, nothing, only words, but, but already some portraits, as you will see. Taken together, these portraits seem to illustrate a clear need to base the validity of the physiognomic signs also on observation. Well, some kind of observation, as you will see. It's not, not what you would perhaps today define as observation, but they define it as observation. First, in his text, come always the signs and their meaning, which are then followed by an observation that confirms them in real life. Cockless' uh, book is replete with declaration that he has seen all these bodily phenomena uh, he is recording. He has a sicut vidi, sicut cognovi, sicut percipi, uh, and then comes a description of what he saw. Um, and that he knows their veracity through experience, per, experim- per, per experientiam. Uh, this time specifically alleging that he has examined many cases. Uh, in the case, for example, of the chiromantic part of the book, Cockles maintains that his judgment is based on the examination of 2,000 hands. The common physiognomic rule that a spherical head is related to limited mental capacities, instability, memory problems, avarice, rudeness, envy, unreliability, and a flawed estimative power is corroborated by him having looked at and observed 10,000 men, so he says. It is particularly common, he says, among the French and the monks, two groups which he detested. The Italian in the 1490s hated the French, but he was also very anti-clerical, as you will see immediately. Um, um, While these uh, um, uh, numbers should not be obviously taken literally, they do suggest that Cochlus was keen on presenting his knowledge as the fruit of intensive and prolonged process of observation and accumulation of individual cases. Um, one can group these portraits into three, and um, I did. I grouped them into three. Um, the first uh, is uh, uh, portraits, literary portraits, uh, dealing with people whose sexual behavior was non-normative. So among this group, you will find portraits uh, of those who are prone to lust and fornication, obsessed with these problems. Uh, there's a portrait of uh, there are portraits of prostitutes. There are portraits of effeminate adolescents and grown-ups and several kinds of sodomites of various sorts. So this is one group of, 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 um, of portraits. Um, the second one, a group, is the, a group of portraits dealing with prominent political figures, um, including ecclesiastical dignitaries. Uh, uh, there are portraits of and again, this is just uh, of, of, of uh, Charles VIII, uh, the King of France. And I just, I just uh, scanned the, the Fayard jacket of, of his, one of the latest biographies, um, focusing obviously uh, uh, on his large nose, um, um, large and aquiline nose. He, it, you find this thing in the chapter on the nose. So it's not a, so. In, there's a chapter on the nose describes the nose, uh, and at the end there is a, there is a portrait of Charles VIII, uh, um, uh, and there is another one, a uh, French king, uh, which uh, the, the one that comes after him. They're all involved in the, in the, in the Italian wars. 
of the 1490s, and the one is the, the Louis the nine, the Louis the, the 12th, also focusing obviously on his nose. And you, as you can see from this um, painting, uh, that he uh, he had also elevated nostrils, and uh, and there's a particular meaning to to inflated nostrils uh, in physiognomic discourse. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's an, uh, an, an, an another um, uh, other portraits are portraits of Cesare Borgia and of Alexander the um, Sixth, um, um, and um, uh, what uh, in uh, they were. I'll just yeah, summarize very quickly. Um, these two, Cesare Borgia and Alexander the Sixth. Um, carried on the face one of the ultimate signs of fraud and deceit, namely a dark red, almost purplish color uh, uh, on their nose uh, and their cheeks. Uh, this type of reddish skin color was the result of excess internal burning, in particular burnt animal spirit, which caused an inclination to treachery, lust, violence, and every other sort of cruelty. And uh, 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 in another chapter, he, he, he actually produces a full portrait, a literary portrait of Alexander the Sixth. The, the sixth. This is, uh, again, a painting of Alexander the Sixth. And I don't know whether he looked like that or not. But just I'm just trying to, I'm, 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 I, uh, but uh, in the chapter, I'm, what I know is only what Cochlus wrote, in a chapter dedicated to, to, uh, to murderers and evil people in general, uh, in Latin, it sounds the homicidis et malis hominibus, hom, hominibus in universali. Cochlus draws, among other things, a full portrait of Alexander VI, who is ironically introduced there as lover of peace, who repels murder, sacrilege, and all other sinful crimes, a man who detests massacres and, and, and value chastity. Now, then he comes, after he ridicules him this way, he, he describes his body, and he says like this, his fleshy body... Um, 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 and he, he lists the, the characteristic of his body. So he, he, he talks about his fleshy body. He talks about his double look, uh, the fleshy submental region, submentum. Lots of words about, and you can see the the, the fact that, that in the drawing that the, you know the the, the, the uh, yes, he's ne he has no neck. Yeah, um, um, and uh, and. Um, um, extending to the throat, and the fiery red facial hair color are repeated items on the list of characteristic signs. Alexander's eyes are shining and spotted, maculosi, and surrounded by wrinkled skin. The nose is small and aquiline and accompanied by strong infranasal depression. Look at the details uh, that he is mentioning. Um, and the voice is sonorous and well articulated. The portrait ends with a triple apology. Cochlus says he has nothing to say about the rest of the body because he did not see it being impeded by Alexander's toga and his other clothes. So he saw on his face and he heard him speaking, so he says. On the nature of his steps, he will say nothing because he did not see the Pope walking. And he will keep silent of his hand being ignorant of its chiromancy. This triple uh, uh, apology uh, uh, reinforces my suggestion that Cochlus was offering his physiognomic insights as the product of direct observation performed with an effort to be as accurate as possible. Um, so this is the second group of, of uh, celebrities. Ah, and, the, and the, the, in, in this second group, um, there is um, um, a, a portrait of Girolamo Savonarola. And uh, the, this is the Latin text, but I won't bother you with the Latin text. But this is one of the famous drawings of Girolamo Savonarola. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 and the, uh, the text focuses on, uh, among other things, in, on his uh, thick lips and on his eyes, which were situated, so he says, secundum longum, I don't know what it means, uh, vertically, presumably slanting eyes which were regarded as a deviation from the natural condition of horizontally situated uh, symmetrical eyes, secundum latitudinem corporis, and are a sign of deceptive, envious character and of an extremely hot complexion. So uh, this is the, the second group of the, the celebrities, uh, portrait of celebrities, and the third one uh, are those dealing with particular social and professional groups, among others, monks, whom he detested, 
um, soldiers and fighters, and academics. Um, I, I, I don't have time to display all these portraits, don't worry. So you, uh, uh, so what I, what, I, what, what I have chosen is one portrait from the first group, uh, and let me read it to you almost, almost uh, I mean, I paraphrase it, but it contains all the details. It's a bit long, but I think that it will convey the, 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 the essence of this sort of uh, change in physiognomic discourse, I think. So he says, sometimes around 1500, Bartolomeo de la Roca Cocles went to a thermal bath um, in Rome. Uh, he says, as was the German custom. The Germans loved uh, spas even then, apparently. Where he observed, he says, uh, notavi, he used the word notavi, a noble courtesan, meretrix nobilis, uh, or summa meretrix, uh, two versions, but uh, yeah, yeah. And so, with the permission of her brothel keeper and her own explicit consent, I gazed, use the word conspexy, at her in the nude, tells us Cocles. And now starts the description. She had a lofty stature. Bartolomeo could not depict her color because she was artificially painted, some sort of a makeup or something. Through such a decisive art, laments Cocles, the women of today paint themselves sometimes in red, sometimes in white, sometimes in intermediary color, in order to appeal to men, thus hiding the fact that they are diabolical agents, etc., and the bellies are, uh, uh, and their bellies is the lavatory of filth and superfluities. But this was just a temporary digression, and Bartolomeo immediately continues with his quiet and almost neutral report. She had a small and spherical, so he starts with the head. He, know, he doesn't know her color, so, which is a flaw. Um, the color of the skin was one of the main uh, um, tools, both for physicians and for physiognomers, to decipher the complexion of the person, which is the, 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 the immediate purpose of the, of the physiognomic checkup and the medical checkup as well. She had a small and spherical head, large ears, thick and prominent neck and throat, and a deep lying collarbone. Her face was large, round, and plump. Her forehead was large, but here again, Cocles is unable to withhold his misogynistic inclinations, and perhaps also his frustration as physiognomer who is deprived of access to important signs and complains that he has nothing to say about her eyebrows, which were depilated with the aid of, uh, of depilatory unguents and other metallic instruments and he says, as was the custom of contemporary women who uh, were trying to look like the worst and most imperfect animals. Her eyes were large, and so were her, were her protruding and very radiant, uh, 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 her eyelids, I'm sorry, were large, and so were her protruding and very radiant eyes. Her look was cheerful, uh, and her eyes had fiery spots. Her cheeks were swollen. Her nose was large, both in length and width. Its tip blunt, and the nostrils were large. The infranasal space had a depression fovea. She had a large mouth and thick, falling lips, diverted upwards and downwards. She had moderately red, large palate, and a large, long, and round tongue. Her voice was high and loud, her breath rapid, and she was full of laughter. She had an extremely round chin, fleshy and well-pierced. Her back and shoulders were broad. Her chest was large and swollen. Her breasts were large, soft, and slightly venous. Um, her arms were short and fleshy. And they, continued, and, and they continued to small hands and ended with small and subtle fingers. Her palm was soft with a, a most tender touch, and her fingernails were short and concave in the middle. The measurement, mensura, and here he says the measurement suddenly creeps into the, into the discourse, uh, not suddenly, but this is typical, it's the beginning of measurements. The measurement of the distance between the navel and the pomegranate presumably the lower part of the breastbone, uh, spotted by a cavity in the chest, was larger than the distance between the pomegranate to the forked bone of the throat. 
Her belly was very large and extended with a well-dug navel. The pubic area was broad and very fleshy, with lots of rough hair. The lips of the vulva were thick and wide open, constantly emitting a most putrid fume. The perineon, which is the space, interstitium, between the anus and the vulva, was large, protruding, and red. Yet this arch prostitute, tells us Cocles, tightened her vulva and the hanging skin resulting from a multitude of boys which she carried in her belly. So that this skin uh, would not hang loose to such an extent, she was assisted with a cunning artifice. And here Cocles gives a detailed recipe of a herbal concoction she used, apparently used, to wash her intimate parts with. And this gives him another, yet another opportunity to vituperate, uh, to, to a vituperative uh, outpour against such women. Such a, such a technique, he tells us, is common among these worst of all women. It is therefore advisable to avoid any contact with them and specifically to refrain from marrying such a woman. Taken together, all these signs, concludes Cocles, suggest that this woman was insatiable in coitus. But the examination of, 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 of this woman's naked body did not end at this point. Beyond the specific behavioral characteristic deciphered by, accumulated, uh, by the accumulated physiognomic signs, other insights were at hand. In addition, tells us Cocles, her buttocks, flanks, and abdomen um, were fleshy. Similarly, her thighs were fleshy. In her knees, bones and veins were entirely hidden. Her shin bones or legs were subtle and well-formed at the ankles. She had tiny feet hiding the contours of, her heel, of the heels. Uh, the sole of her feet was de had a decent surface. It got until the sole of the, 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 of the feet. In her walk, she was not erect, so he, he examined her while walking, and her steps were very, very slow. She moved her head like a heart. The structure of her belly allowed him to pronounce his judgment that she dedicated herself to, to gluttony as well. Some of the signs hinted at the predicted brevity of her life, of, 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 of her life span. Um, Now, what do we do with such a uh, um, description? Should one incorporate Bartholomew's piercing and detailed gaze in the long history of scientific observation? The noun observatio or the verb observare do not appear in these texts. In their place, Cocles uses the verb notare and conspicere, translated by me as denoting the act of observing or watching very uh, attentively. The portraits, um, including this one that I gave you an example, as an example, uh, immediately create an association with a thorough medical checkup which aims at identifying the patient's complexion and its imbalances. Cochlear is not producing pure data innocent of all authority. All the signs composing the portraits follow standard physiognomic manuals, especially that of Pietro D'Abano. Uh, Cochlear is not uh, neutrally observing bodily signs in nature and collecting visual data, which are then processed uh, into a final judgment uh, and then into a general argument about the body of a general category, for example, prostitutes. He was not looking for signs of lust on an anonymous person. He knew the professional preoccupation of, or, or the political behavior of his examinee. But when he created these portraits, was he merely trying to illustrate in words and to substantiate the validity of uh, physiognomic knowledge, uh, which was rooted in authoritative texts? Um, um, Pseudo-Aristotelian and other ancient texts and the medieval commentators, or was he presenting the reader standardized bodies which were a distillation of many previous observations, similar but not identical, providing future physiognomers with grids of observation and enabling them to grasp the physiognomy of individuals at a glance? If we return to the portrait of the prostitute, Cocles seems to be observing the lady 
in order to give uh, validity to the bodily signs of prostitution, which he listed earlier on. And he finally reaches a general judgment on the basis of the accumulated knowledge he acquired through this act of observation. Cochlus's engagement in, in what one could describe as early acts of scientific observation though, uh, does not only emerge from my exegetical efforts here when I read and present these portraits. He himself describes his activity as observation, specifically using the, word, the noun observatio or even magna observatio. And I quote, for example, I have, he says, I have not found neither among ancients nor among the moderni a magna observatio about those who would die in their own native land. In a chapter about uh, prophecy or uh, predicting um, times of death, one of the, they were obsessed with these bits uh, of, of knowledge about people, when people would die. But when I wanted to make a prognosis on this, I would consider whether there were signs signifying exile or death outside the native land. If I could find such signs, I would prognosticate that they would die in their house, uh, in their own house, or in their native land. I have observed notavi many who had signs signifying journey as well as signs signifying a severe disease for that age and season, especially a broken cardiac line on the hand. This was the case with the tender adolescent Troilus Felsinus who died in Parma. And, and, I, and, and then he brings a, a, a portrait of this Troilus of uh, uh, Felsinus, whom I don't know who he was. It seems that Cochlus collected data, created possible profile, which he then validated with a real case. Whether by observatio he meant the whole process or just a final outcome, that is, a set of accepted signs that can be found in a single person, in his view, observation was an essential part of the, physiognomical, uh, of the physiognomous task. Particularly revealing in this respect is the last chapter in Anastasis. Together with Hippocrates and Galen, Cocles deems himself as belonging and I, uh, 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 to the wise, and I quote him, to the wise natural philosophers, observers of the course of nature, and in Latin it sounds nicer, sapientes physici, observatores cursus nature. Let me boast, he says, and reveals an unpleasant side of his personality that Hermes, Aristotle, Albertus, i.e. Albertus Magnus, Conciliator, that is Petrus, uh, Pietro d'Abano, Ptolemy, and other famous thinkers were not as great observers, magni observatores, of the plethora of individuals as I have been. From this emerges the need to prepare, and this is the end of the quotation, I, I continue. From this emerges the, the need to prepare the setting for an undisturbed observation in every individual case. Most of the, of the, of the, of the, of the last chapter in, 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 in um, Cochlus's um, compendium is then devoted to meticulous instructions for the chiromancer, how to perform uh, what's the practice of this, of this strange science. And he says, observe, he uses the verb, the verb uh, aspicere uh, in, in command form, aspicias or aspicier. Observe, therefore, sober individuals removed from the effects of, of intoxication and great labor. Avoid the interferences of the weather and both intense heat and cold. Prepare the subject in a balanced place removed from the solar rays and shun the callousness of the hands together with bodily emptiness or needs or need. You should not observe a person who is in a state of fear, extreme desire, in disease or in the midst of a process of, of, of convalescence, neither in a great joy nor sadness or in coital furore nor uh, for all these things alter the bodies and the judgment cannot be whole. Observe, as speak, whether the individual has a crafty or a balanced nature. Only then start looking at the bodily signs. In the case of the chiromancers, the hands of the examined person, the right hand for the male, 
the left hand for the female, should be washed with cold water, dried and rubbed uh, with a linen cloth, and children younger than four years should not be examined. This, of course, was a practical advice meant to assure that the chiromantic examinations could be conducted efficiently and validly. But appearing in the concluding chapter of the book, side by side with, self with his self-identification as an observer of the course of nature, it presents a comprehensive picture of the, of the art of sci and science of physiognomy around 1500, according to Cochlus. Both relied on careful observation, which was the source of the science as well as of the diagnosis and prognosis produced by the practical art. And I conclude. In this respect, Cochles, uh, the last medieval-style commentator of Aristotelian physiognomy, dramatically departed from the medieval tradition. It would be rash to draw broad conclusion from a single case. One will need to study more deeply whether or not he was the harbinger of an observational mood among physiognomers, which would henceforth engulf learned physiognomy. The fact that the abbreviated versions uh, uh, of Anastasis, um, which, uh, which became uh, the source of his European fame among 16th century physiognomers, um, and then were translated in many, into many European languages. Into, uh, there's an English version, there's a German version, it's a, but it's, it's an abbreviated version. Uh, and these versions uh, uh, deleted these portraits suggests that the long history of physiognomy and observation was not linear. The long version of the book, the 1504 version, was put on the index, and so it was, it was uh, not available easily um, throughout the 16th century. Uh, but Cochlus was very known so it's not, through, the, through the, uh, the, the, the abbreviated version. Um, but in the long history of scientific observation, one should perhaps devote a footnote to this eccentric physician from Bologna who provides us with one of the earliest examples of scientific observation in the Latin West. 